0: Good afternoon. Hi, this is Lauren DelRitchie calling. And
1: this is Heath Phillips, and you're listening to the MST Podcast. This podcast episode is made possible by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For over 10 years throughout western Pennsylvania, the Veterans Breakfast Club has been creating communities of listening around veterans and their stories. For more information about veterans' storytelling events near you, visit veteransbreakfastclub.com. The main thing I tell everybody is they're not alone. For years, I thought I was alone. Always find somebody that's healthy to be able to rely on and don't hold it in. Oh my gosh, find somebody to trust and just let it out. That first time opening up that can of worms is probably the best time of your life because you're not holding it in no more. When my story is told, other stories can unfold. It's still uncomfortable for some people to talk about.
0: You're old enough to raise your right hand and join the military. We're old enough to talk about sex. Once you tell your story, you might give others the strength to do so.
1: That's how I found the strength. I wasn't ready to deal with my MST, but when I started hearing others start telling their stories, there were other survivors. And when they started talking to me, I was like,
0: I'm not alone. And then it was this real openness that I can deal with this, there would be help. You know, I was just uh, doing a little bit of homework about you, Heath, and, I mean, the Washington Post, NPR, the Today Show, Protect Our Defenders, talked about you in The Hill. Man, you have really opened up and told your story on all these national platforms. What was that like?
1: At first, nerve-wracking. I don't know how to explain it. Like, I'll be honest with you, I never expected to be where I am now as far as, like, trying to help other people. Wasn't really the idea of why I did anything. It was to start helping me. Mm-hmm. And then the Megan Kelly show, um, I actually, I, I was very nervous up until I got on the stage, <laughs> then I got on the stage and I like zoned everybody out and just stayed focused on Megan. But some of the other, cause I've testified in Congress and that Senate and I speak at military installations. So for me, it's, I, I zone everything out it's a lot easier doing like what you and I are doing is a lot easier than doing it in person with a whole bunch of people.
0: <laughs> I agree. I agree. How do you do? How, what do you, you say you zone them out? I mean, it sounds like you might've gotten good at that because that's probably, I think that's a hard task, you know, to figure out how to do that. You know,
1: I used to speak when I was a kid in school, I uh, was in plays. I did a lot of stage things. So I actually kind of learned somewhat how to do it. My first really big speaking event was at Fort Drum up here in New York. And before I went out and spoke, the um, victim advocate was really cool. They uh, told me, you're like, just zone out, just look at the people, but don't look at the people, and just find like one or two people out there that have like a friendly face and use that as your guidance. So that's kind of what I do when I go out, especially military bases. I spoke at um, last year, there was over 5,000 people in the audience. And for one, you can't, you can't look that far out to see everybody.
0: Hopefully you but, had some uh, friendly faces. I was faces. at Henderson Hall. Okay. Yeah,
1: well, I didn't know anybody, but I was mm-hmm. at Henderson Hall, which is by Arlington. And so what I did is I just zoned until I found like a person that looked friendly. And then I just use them as my pivot point.
0: Hopefully they were like in the front row, right? (laughs) 5,000 people. Yeah. And
1: what I do is I look at them, but everyone, you know, it makes it so I keep turning my head back and forth. So I look like I'm paying attention to everybody. Right.
0: That is a talent. So, you know, good for you for figuring that out, especially, you know, talking about such a personal revealing subject.
1: Yeah. Especially being a male.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for bringing that up. So I, I just want to let you know that uh, I'm also a survivor. I'm not male. I'm female. And um, back in January, when I started to kind of dream up this podcast idea, I wanted to interview fellow female veterans who had been sexually assaulted. And when I did some homework about it and I did some research, I was absolutely like sickened, but just really blown away by the fact that, you know, like in 2014, I'm going off some like RAND Corporation survey, but 20,000 surveyed, 10,500 of them were men. So it's like 52%. And I've seen that number floating around in other stories as well. I absolutely could not believe that.
1: Um, Unfortunately, it's one of the biggest overlooked issues anywhere with any media, even on the Hill. But, you know, I do a lot of legislation work on the Hill, and it's like, what, man? And especially when you're speaking to veterans that are Congress members or they're interns that are veterans, and they're like, oh, it doesn't as a man," And they're like, okay, you're right. I'm not a guy. Right. You got me. You know, ooh, you got me here. Right, right. Uh, like, I know you did something with a good friend of mine, Tim Jones.
0: Yes, I did. Is he a friend of yours? Yes. Oh, wow. How about that? Small world.
1: <laughs> it, it is a very, very small world. Um, him and I actually with eight other speakers are going to be, um, working on doing culture change, speaking events through, uh, United States, overseas military installation, colleges, schools, wherever we can do basically on culture change, on making it like, so it's not really a gender issue. Mm -hmm. I, I think once we get past this gender issue part, people will start adapting and understanding it a little bit more and it's a work in process.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to be a tough nut to crack. So I, I, ju- I applaud you for that effort because um, even someone like me who I've been serving in the veteran community um, as a service provider for about 10 years now and, you know, different realms, little education. And, and recently I've gotten into storytelling and things like that. But even my point is someone who's educated about this population and I still had no idea like, it was just on, you know, it was some ra- a random statistic in a the time story, I think it was, when I saw over 50%, or maybe it was the GQ one, but um I had to read it a couple of times over, because I just, I truly didn't even see that happening, so it actually immediately changed kind of the plan and the trajectory for the podcast. And that's why Tim Jones was my first guest. And he did a wonderful job and we had a good time doing it. As hard as that is to believe when you're talking about something like this. But, you know, Tim's fun. We have good time together.
1: (laughs) He's awesome. I I unfortunately have never had an event with him. We've been at the same areas. Mm -hmm. But he's an awesome guy. He's just phenomenal. I, I enjoy our heartfelt talks. There's not many male survivors that talk with each other. So it's a better kinmanship, though, because we understand each other.
0: You guys have a little bit of the same mentality. I know in one of your articles you said, you know, when you went from victim to survivor, right, um, that kind of helped propel you forward into your healing and and, and growing um, past this. And Tim says, you know, yep, you go from victim to survivor, and then you pivot from survivor to thriver. And I absolutely love when he said that on the podcast, because it's really important to me and and for the success of the podcast, for the people who are listening to not lament over the details of the story and the horrific, you know, we need to touch on that. We need to understand why we're having this, the rest of the conversation. So that does need to be a part of it, Heath, but we don't need to sit and lament over the details and, and the gruesome story of it. The point is, how did you get past it? How did you get through those 20 years homelessness? Uh, alcoholism, you know, substance abuse, all these things that we all struggle with, like how, and when I met Tarana Burke in, uh, I think February, she was here, she was the starter of the hashtag Me Too movement. And mm-hmm. I just got to ask her a few questions. And that was one of her questions to me was, how did you survive this? How are you dressed up? You know, How's your hair done? How, how are you standing in front of me right now? And she put it so simply that I felt like there was a very poignant point, you know, so that's, the uh, the underlying hope and how you got through it is really what I want to hear about today. And we can, you know, probably just give everyone who's listening a little bit of background if they haven't seen you on your multiple platforms um, and the Today Show and all that kind of stuff. So you joined the Navy um, in 1988,
1: right? Yes, ma'am. Um, I actually, when I joined, it was, I was still 16. So I had to wait until I was 17 to actually sign my paperwork. Wow. And then a few days after my 17th birthday, I was in boot camp.
0: You couldn't wait. You were really gung-ho. You really wanted to get in that Navy, huh?
1: Well, I did not want to get in the Navy, being honest. I'm a, I'm an Army brat, so I actually wanted to be in the Army. But at 16 and 17, I didn't have a high school diploma. I had a GED. Mm-hmm. So the only military that would take you back in 1988 was the Navy, was a GED. Really? At my age. I. Yeah, if I was eighteen with a GED, the army would have took me. Hmm. But I was seventeen with a GED, and only the Navy would. So, I was like, ah, I'll I'll do the I'll do this one. I'll do this for four years. I'll get out. I'll right. get out, and then I'll join the army. And you know that was my goal. You know I was going to be a lifer.
0: Right. And a lifer, like you had mentioned in one of your other podcasts, someone who serves 20 years, right? You didn't go into it thinking, I'll do four years, I'll get a GI Bill or, you know, whatever other travel the world. That wasn't your goal. I'll be honest with
1: you. I didn't even, the GI Bill wasn't even on my mind ever. Traveling the world wasn't on my mind. It was serving my country. I can date back, because my mom has done extensive uh, family heritage things. You know, I, I can date back family fighting in the Persian War, which was like way long time ago, yeah. back in Genghis Khan. <laughs> you know, but I, my family has had a long, long line history of being in the military, serving your country. Um, so to me, especially being like an army brat, mm-hmm. you know, my dad was in the army. I My stepfather was in the army. I, my uncles. I even had an aunt that was a nurse in the Um, I can't remember, I think she was in the air force, but you know, it was like a lot of military family and it was, you know, to me, it was serving my country. It was being something, you know, to me, that's what I envisioned as that age.
0: Me too. Yeah. Do you ever get the question, you know, why did you choose to join the service? And I always liken it to like kind of the calling you might get to be like a member of the cloth or a priest or something like that. Like, you're not quite sure what it is, but you know, you're being pulled like a magnet or a multiple yeah, flame in this direction. Yeah, a calling. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Almost like a calling. And the fact that you, that your dad was in the army, I'm wondering how he reacted to you wanting to, you know, preemptively join the Navy before you got to the army. Did Was he still proud of you or was he a little bit like... Oh, you shouldn't join the Navy, Heath.
1: (laughs) Uh, He didn't want me to join the Navy. (laughs) No? But uh, my parents were separated. I think I was like 14 when they got separated. So he like couldn't sway me because, you know, I was with my mom who I knew was struggling Mm -hmm. financially. You know, my mom couldn't go back to work. She had broken her back in a car accident. And after surgery, they're like, listen, you can't really do much. So, you know, I, I didn't want to, I always felt like I was a burden. I, I, I guess that's the easiest way to say it. You know, I felt like I was a burden. And so for me, just getting out and being in the military was taking that burden away from my mother. Mm-hmm. And it was doing something I wanted to do, which was to be in the military. So, you know, it was, it was like easy for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't hard. And I think when we're that age, um, You know, there's less of an instilled fear in us as young, as youngins, you know, we're ready to conquer the world and no one's going to tell us otherwise, right? Uh,
1: (laughs) We were young and dumb and didn't know any better.
0: Yep. It's the answer we get at a lot of our events. Why'd you join? Well, I was young and dumb. So that's that. But I mean, it sounds like you had very honorable intentions going in. You know, you wanted to be a lifer. You chose the Navy. You got in as soon as possible. But unfortunately for you, Heath, that um, was cut short. Because you didn't even barely make it through A school before you had some of your fellow
1: servicemen. What happened is my A school, um, I'm colorblind. So I uh, was not able to complete my A school due to being colorblind. So my first assault actually happened my very first day when I got out of A school and was made to my next duty station.
0: When you went to New York City, right?
1: Yeah, Good old New York City, where I was just at on the Megyn Kelly show. (laughs) Right. It was kind of funny. I was like, I walked down memory lane when I was there. I had a little extra time. And 42nd Street was walking distance from my hotel. And 42nd Street was the bus depot that we took. So, you know, I did a little memory lane walk. Nothing looked the same, you know, because it was like, Mm -hmm. 30 years later
0: (laughs) but I bet it was still clear as day in your mind you know you could probably remember the bus
1: station was I knew exactly where the bus station was it -hmm. was there
0: well that that's a terrible irony but um, I mean if there was any time to like freak out and have a panic attack it probably for me would have been that moment like you said like walking up to the show getting there so the fact that when you when you actually did your interview you said you were composed and you did well you know that speaks volumes of your character and how far you've come yeah
1: I know I couldn't I I couldn't have done any of this 10 years ago
0: yeah and you know what I I was
1: still drinking
0: yeah why do you think it takes so long like we'll circle back to the drinking and how that kind of goes part and parcel and what happens there but my question I I just want to know because it took me a long time like to actually start talking about it mine was in 2001 so we're here 17 years later I think I started this maybe a year ago so 15 years 20 years what do you think that, what do you think, I mean, is it because we're abusing alcohol or drugs or do you think it's just because it's too painful to talk about it? Like, why do you think it takes For me, so long? it was
1: a lot of shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. I tried to repress a lot of the feelings and this, the flashbacks and the nightmares scared me so tremendously that I didn't know how to speak about it. As as a man, and I think, see, I I didn't have a good relationship with my father when I came home. Great childhood bond. I came home, and it wasn't because of my father. It was because of me. I I was embarrassed by myself. My dad had taught me how to fight as a kid, and it's like, how could I fight and still have this happen? So for me, I also thought I was the only one. I never in a million years imagined that there was other survivors. I mean, you hear it on TV and all that, but, I mean, really knowing it. I had no clue, so I just I kind of lived in a self pity mode, and I allowed my brain because, unfortunately, a lot of us until we learn how to overcome things, you allow your brain, your thoughts to control yourself, and that's my I I was constantly, uh, no, it was wasn't like fearful, but you know it was that constant looking over your shoulder, looking in the corners and that, that was very embarrassing especially for a grown man that that's an embarrassing thing for me I've talked to other people this is a really good topic and I'm glad you pulled it up because I've talked to other people and I've had some friends that are LGBTQ and like the females they're like well we didn't want to discuss this we hit it because we're LGBTQ and we're not supposed to be with men so you know for us that's another shameful direction I have um, males that are like, well, we're supposed to be strong, even though we're LGBTQ, we didn't ask for it. So for us, that's demeaning. There's so many different things, but a lot of it pertains to emotions, our emotions, how we each handle that emotions.
0: Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. You said something about uh, brain control, and I was actually just talking to my therapist the other day about this that like i said it takes so long i mean it's been 15 20 years and i know in the grand sense of themes that might be a drop in the bucket with time but you know i asked her i said doc like why why do i still think about this stuff right why when i see someone that looks like the man who assaulted me why why do i still think about that why do i still dream about this cuz i don't want to you know and you know having this um pod like interviewing people being a part of what i do in my life now because like you said when we started kind of doing it for others, not for ourselves, right? But I thought, you know, through all the different types of therapy, you know, the exposure therapy and the behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy, they they encourage you to talk about it, right, and to talk about it over and over until you're almost numb to it. I don't think that's happening to me yet. (laughs) I wonder how you feel. I'm
1: still not numb. I I still have my nightmares. I still have flashbacks. I'll be honest with you, I I tried doing that um, cognitive therapy thing there, Mm. and I almost relapsed. And so I twisted mine around instead of doing that form of therapy. I still talk about, but my therapy, how I cope is by doing what I do. I, it sounds kind of corny, but by me going speaking at military bases, every month I'm at Fort drum. So every month I'm always doing at least one of that. And it's that knowing I'm helping other people, that's kind of my healing process. Mm-hmm. To me, that's why I said it sounds kind of corny, but
0: no.
1: it's like, and I, and I explained this many, many years ago. It's like being like a, a burn victim where your skin's burning, you're all shrunk up into your body. And each time you expose yourself, you get rid of an extra layer of skin that's constraining you and you feel more and more at ease. That's mm-hmm. how it works for me. Um, everyone, unfortunately, is different in therapy Directions. Everyone different on how they take assaults. Um, tragic events. We all react differently. I mean, it's similar, but it's we we are all different. Unfortunately, no, so there's like no easy cure.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And and sometimes you know I say to myself how do I know that I'm helping other people by doing this? You know, like, and then you might get a testimony, you know, a a veteran might come up to me and say, wow, I just, I listened to your podcast and you're, you know, you're so brave for telling your story, things like that. But it's really important to me to know that doing this, like kind of like preparing myself for this and doing this and going through this every single time I do it, you know, basically like sweating, my palms sweating the whole time, knowing that somehow, some way, it will definitely help someone. So I'm curious to know, like, you know, have people said to you, thank you, Heath, like you, you're telling your stories, helped me so much?
1: More than once. Some of my, I can give you the best one that I just had at my, not my last military base, but a memorable, I spoke for the postcard and I was in Petaluma and I did my event and I had this guy who was just standing off the side. Like most people walked away and then he came up and he says, hey, can I speak with you? I'm like, Yeah, sure. And he introduced himself and says, I want to thank you. And I, and I just looked at him and I said, You know, thank you. And he hugged me. Now, Ben hugging me kind of still bothers me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Be honest with you, it still bothers me. And but you know, I gave him the the, the hug back and he stepped back and he started crying. He says, Um, I wanna thank you for your strength, your courage. He goes, I'm leaving from here and I'm gonna go talk to a victim advocate. He goes I've been holding this for years because I still work with this person and this person did things to me that they shouldn't. And I was just thrown back. I was like, Oh my gosh. And it, it just, it, cause you're not expecting that, Mm-mm. you know, you, 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 hear things, but the, the hear it like that was like, Holy cow. And I had, I was there for two days and the victim advocate came up to me the very following day. And Like, when can we have you back here again? (laughs) I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? They want to know when I can come back. They said that they had three people within 24 hours come to them, report things, and use me as why they did it. Really? So you get thrown back when that happens. You're not expecting that.
0: Does it bring you any kind of solace, comfort, justification? Like, there's a reason – because basically for me, I mean, I'm not going to pretend it's like torture, right? No one's pulling my fingernails out telling me you have to sit down and speak with these people. But it's almost like that same feeling of like being compelled to join and serve. It's almost that, that same feeling of why I do this, right? When my friend came to me in January and said, hey, you should do a Me Too podcast or an MSD podcast. I was like, oh, and I just had that immediate feeling like, you're right, I should. Um, and I don't want to. And even before this episode, I have a dog named Linus and he's my best friend and I'll admit I talked to him and I was like, all right, buddy, <laughs> um, you know, got a couple of tough episodes coming up today and he gave me, you know, some of his loving and kisses and he made me feel better. But like, there's no easy way, I don't think, to accept that, hey, that me, Heath, you know, Tim, all of this is kind of a part um, of our lives now. And we have to do this because, you know, my soul like kind of compels me to, even if I don't want to, even if it's uncomfortable. But it's when I when I hear people like you say, "Listen, three lives that you know of immediately," you know, this guy went right to the victim advocate. I mean, for I think that's you know, wonderful feedback and proof to make you feel like you're doing this for a reason. Do you feel the same way?
1: Yes, I, I tell everybody it's not for me anymore; it's for them. Yeah, I, I don't want anybody to live my life, so. I guess it's my way of giving back yeah. I, for my 20 years of being a knucklehead. But <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it, it's very heartwarming. Um, you just gave me goosebumps. So it, the emotional feeling of um, gratitude. Um, I, I'm very grateful that I, unfortunately what happened to me is able to help others. Yeah. You know, and I say unfortunately because unfortunately this stuff happened to me. But I know it's helping others being able to share it.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah it you definitely it definitely is. I'm glad I mean, I know we we got to the part about hope and and the part about sharing. you know, we kind of front loaded it today and I'm fine with that. you know, like I said, I don't want to focus on on what happened or the event or anything like that. but um, and I know you've been liberal and sharing this, you know time after time, and I've watched a few of your videos, but I don't know if you've been able to get it into a condensed form or a nutshell yet. I have, but with you, I mean there was there was multiple assaults. There was you know the one that really so you know ended it all sort of. So is there any way that you could just let the our listeners know um kind of what you went through briefly so they can understand how important like you bouncing back and you being here today standing on your feet as a successful man, you know, I just I want people to understand
1: what happened to me is um, when I joined, 17, I went to boot camp, went to go to A school, deemed colorblind. Apparently, they didn't want the helicopter flying backwards, so they uh, kind of sent me away from electrician technician school. I got sent to a ammunition ship, USS Butte AE-27, which is no longer um, around. They sunk it out in the harbor. But um, I showed up on a weekend. Apparently, back, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to show up went Then I went with some shipmates out on the town. My first night out on the town, they, I, I can't say they drugged me because I don't know. But I know after two Dixie cups of booze, I was passed out, which I knew what I could drink. So that was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, woke up with being assaulted, went back to my ship, reported it, was told I was a liar, mama's boy, all that. I dealt with 49 days straight of these guys assaulted me in some form or fashion, whether it was just beating me, sexual, um, oral, whatever it is, it, 49 days of it, I had lost a lot of weight. I was not sleeping. I was very sick. I would report it for 49 days. It was called wire, called home. Father told me to go home so we could fix it. I did that while home. We had a congressional investigation started. I stayed AWOL. I ended up getting picked up, went to jail while in jail. Met a psychiatrist who, um, I didn't find out until many years later had told my command that I had post-traumatic stress disorder due to these assaults. Sent back to my ship and off and on from start to finish dealt with 10 months, ranging from six men down to three men. Assaulting me until the final straw when I had my horrific assault and I snapped and went AWOL and when I came back, I was offered a other than honorable discharge, which by this time I'm 18. And like I said, it was, this is a 10 months thing. I just couldn't handle being there anymore. And I took their offer I was discharged, not realizing with that discharge what it would do to me that I would never be able to get mental health help, which I mm-hmm. drastically needed. So I spent 20 years as a drunk, started popping pills to try sleeping, couldn't hold a job, did a lot of stupid things, DWI, you know, heavy mm-hmm. soft, writing a lot of bad checks, stay drunk, you know, stupid things. Yeah. Things that's not in my character. <laughs>
0: Right. And it wasn't you. I mean, it was the affected, afflicted version of Heath who was just trying to make it through without having the proper health care and the help that you needed. Um, yes. And a lot of your articles, a lot of the stuff I read about you has been focused on the idea of this discharge, right? You know, he went AWOL, like after being, you know, this and his, and your father who was in the army, like you drove this home, um, this point home in a few of your other interviews. You're like, my dad would never tell me, to come home or, you know, to go AWOL, absent without leave, you know, that that your dad was an Army guy. He knows that that is breaking, um, you know, the, the military regulations. regulations. So the fact that he told you to do that was, that really meant a lot to you, right, at the time? Like, yeah. Like, he was there and he was like, it's okay, son, like, come home.
1: If he was not said that, I wouldn't have went home. I would have stayed there. I, I would have kept enduring it. Hearing it from my father, like I told everybody, I never in a million years expected him to say that. That was was not what I was calling for Right. because <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do. Right. And, you know, so my dad telling me that. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I did. I, I went home. And, you know, unfortunately, um, I had 20 years of a bad relationship with my father afterwards. But, yeah, that's one of my key things that, like, the biggest memory is my dad saying that. Mm-hmm.
0: And you said you just got home from a little vacation or visiting your dad recently, right? So do you guys talk about it now? Do you talk about it with your dad, or do you guys just kind of, like, talk about other stuff?
1: You know, he he talks about it because he's really proud of me. Uh, To go on a stupid little story is um, last year I announced running for Congress where I live. And my dad calls me, and he's like, son, don't run for Congress. Don't run for Congress. And, you know, I didn't listen to him because I I felt— running and if I want how much I could help survivors, you know, that was my mindset and I stepped out in September and I'll be with you, it was probably the smartest and healthiest thing I ever could have done was stepping out. Mm-hmm. I was degraded constantly for being a survivor because I'm not a politician. I was not valuable, mm-hmm. but you know, um, my dad and I talk about this still now. He's like, well, look at all the good that you do not as a politician. If you become a politician, you no longer are able to do this. You can't go to military bases. You can't go to colleges. You can't go on TV shows. You can't go on podcasts speaking about all this stuff because you're a politician.
0: Yeah, I think I have to agree with Dad there. (laughs) I'm glad that you listened. It made
1: sense. You know, it it kicked in. I was like, wow, geez, Dad's right again. Here (laughs) we go. (laughs) You know, it it was just... um, we still, we still talk about it. We just don't go into depth like we did when I first came home. And then, you know, I felt really ashamed. But it's still really nice hearing my dad tell me he's proud of me.
0: There's nothing quite like those words, are there? Yeah.
1: yeah, especially when I didn't get it for some reason. <laughs> I wasn't proud of myself either. So.
0: Uh-huh. Well, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, and I'm I'm so excited to get this information out there because I don't know how the heck you got your discharge upgraded. I have been fighting that battle for years, um, and that is like one of the I headlines. I don't know how I
1: did. <laughs> I, just- I don't even know. I mean, I had paper trail on paper trail. That's... I think the only thing that's really ever saved me
0: mm-hmm.
1: is I always kept the paper trail. That's was one thing my dad always told me, even as a kid, paper trail, paper trail, paper trail. Paper trail. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing is when I became sober and I became active doing advocacy work, a lot of the things I did focus on helping people, and we used that in my paperwork. You know, look what this guy's worked at. Look what this guy does. Look what, mm-hmm. you know, he puts himself out there doing to help other service members and you guys still want to keep him you know I I was only asking for a general discharge that's all I wanted mm-hmm. my lawyer's like no you deserve better and I'm like listen I'll settle with a general and you got
0: the honorable as long as I don't yeah
1: I got the full honorable like I was discharged today out of the military with a, um, a normal discharge my code states that i can re-enlist if i choose
0: <laughs> i don't think you're gonna I do that <laughs> i'm
1: like 40 if they did this 20 years ago i would have re-enlisted but mm-hmm. you know i'm 47 now i don't even think i could pass boot camp. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i was so happy to hear that part of your story that you there's so much of a victory in that i'm not sure quite what it is but for you know for me like to serve for three years and really bust my hump and even you know after being raped and things like that. And then to get out and say your service, the character of your service is other than honorable. I said, that's bullshit. It is not.
1: That you know? <laughs> this charge is such a stigma. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's just crazy. I helped um, Vietnam veterans work on Fairness for Veterans mm-hmm. Act. You need to Google it and look at it because we use that also as part of my thing. That's designed to help people with our discharges to get upgrades. That's what that bill is designed for. It passed law. President Obama signed it into law in November 2017. And, you know, it was something I drastically fought getting extra adding words from MST added in there, TBI, personality disorders. I made sure that was all added into the bill and I helped with this.
0: Right. You covered it all. I? I
1: did this with Human Rights Watch. I don't know if you're ever affiliated with them. Mm -hmm. they do an extensive things on military sexual trauma and assault. A lot of my stuff is, a lot of people don't really realize what I do. And it's because I've never been one of them raising my hand, wave, and hey, look at me, look what I'm doing in D.C. You know, I do a lot of behind the scenes getting legislation moved. Right now, I'm working with Congresswoman Custer on a um, military sexual assault transparency and accountability bill that is similar to how you and I were discharged. We were we were considered collateral misconduct or collateral damage because you and I were assaulted we got the, the, the bad end of the stick. Right. We're trying to make the military now start being accountable for this and start reporting all of this. And I'm having a little friction on DOD folks but it it's needed for folks like
0: us. It is because I mean the same thing when you described, and I hope you don't you don't mind if I take details from other things I've heard. And because like when you went to medical and you and you told them about this, um, the toilet brush. Yes. And you we were sodomized, and you know they said, "Oh, it's hemorrhoids." Like take the day off yeah. and go. I mean, even if there's a paper trail of that, there's a paper trail. You had hemorrhoids. I mean it was our word against theirs. And for me, I, you know, I kind of had the same issue. Like you were, you know, you were drinking. I was drinking too. Well, then that's your fault. Well, then you're an alcoholic and you need to go to SWAT or whatever that SARS or whatever the hell their version of, you know, whatever is. And it's like, no. (laughs) And then you talked about feeling embarrassment and guilt and things of that, like over the years. And I think it comes and, you know, thinking it's your fault. I could have prohibited this. You know, I shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. I shouldn't have, reported for duty on the weekend by accident. I didn't know. I mean, I could go on and on after everything I've heard about you and think, you know, the guilt that must have plagued you forever. But the fact that you're now taking that and all those you know, negative feelings and transferring them into like this positive, like helping with the MSD accountability bill, I mean, that's huge. And making sure that and, and the everything is included in there, whether you know, because a paper trail sometimes is not enough, you know, so it's whatever the VA says you have and as a result of what Thank you clean.
1: you. And, and, yeah. and see, like with the VA, I learned this from the VA, but they, um so when I started getting mental health treatment, my VA therapist was talking to me and she was actually pretty cool. She ended up getting fired, but she was still cool. Um, she told me like with me going AWOL, mm-hmm. she's like, Heath, there is no way you're in your right state of mind.
0: Right.
1: You know, there's no way. You're being assaulted. You're 17. She goes, you know, that is considered temporary insanity. Right. Which I had no. I, how am I supposed to know all this stuff? You know, I don't know any of this stuff. Well, she would, she could not put it in my records. And she told me outright, and this is one of the reasons why she got fired, not because of me, but, you know, she was actually helping us. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's like, you need to go outside of the VA another mental health provider discuss this with them. And so that's what I did is I went and I met another one by my home and I was paying a lovely copay. Mm-hmm. and we were talking and I put, shared all this stuff and she goes, yeah, they're correct. So I filed for service connected and I believe it or not, I was granted service connected before I got my upgrade. Oh yeah, I'm hundred percent service connected. And I, I won my appeal in 2015 on that. Wow. And I still had an other than honorable discharge.
0: Yeah, you had to fight the discharge. You applied for that four times, I heard, right? Like that was the fourth time where you finally I mean I Yeah, feel it was like, my
1: fourth time. Yeah, <laughs> that's,
0: that's what they do with everything, you know, like
1: they want you to give up. I got an appeal in Buff- or in Washington, DC right now. I first time I ever filed for Service Connect was in two thousand three. Now they denied me. Now two thousand three I was a drunk. I didn't know anything. And I didn't know I could appeal it. My VSO did not tell me I could appeal it. Nobody told me anything, but the VA screwed up and they never looked at all my record. So technically, technically, my case should have never been closed. It should have stayed open. So we filed paperwork to get my claim to be retroactive to 2003. And the reason why I was denied in 2003 was because I didn't have, I was denied due to my discharge.
0: Right. The other than honorable stand in your way. Yeah, it's like uh, you're kind of stuck, right? Because you need one for the other. Yeah, uh uh-huh.
1: My service-connected case, um, attorneys at like William & Mary and Syracuse University and all that, Yale, Uh they use that case for their clients. I did my own case, and I won. My case is unheard of getting...
0: That is unheard of, but I'll tell you what, um, the same thing happened to me. I don't even know like how we did it, Heath, because... Like, I'll get these letters that says, like, you're honorable for VA benefits, but the actual discharge still says other than honorable. I'm like, come on, man. Come on. Really? Like, I actually got – I have fought for a long time for it, but the post Nine Eleven 11 GI Bill, that is strictly for those who have served honorably. Like, there's no wiggle room in that. Um and they gave me the GI like I mean, I used Vogue Rehab and then I got the additional twelve months of GI Bill with another than honorable discharge because he I, I denied pers- rehab. They how did they oh gosh, we can't get into the weeds here on this because oh, uh, it's just so horrible. The moral, The moral of the story is you know, when you're dealing with the VA and you're dealing with service connected disability, just because you get the one letter in the mail that says no that you can't stop there, right? That should be our message to listeners. You just, you're a proof I'm living peace. You place. don't, you
1: keep going. You keep yeah. going. You don't stop. I, I tell everybody, even if you got to take baby steps mm-hmm. or smaller than baby steps. Mm-hmm. Keep going forward. The VA knows that we're going to just stop. So they don't care. Oh, they'll just give up. If you don't give up, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, like me, it's like way, way too many years. But mm-hmm. um, I have a friend who just, you know, they saw that I won my case and they just got paperwork back and they, they were discharged and they had a personality disorder added to their thing. Mm -hmm. They, the air force just took that off last week. Mm -hmm. She's like, Oh my God, thank you for, you know, constantly saying, keep going forward, keep going forward. And I'm like, listen, only time we should be looking down on anybody is when we're extending our hand to help them out. That's the only time. And we should always be moving forward to keep doing something. Got to keep moving forward.
0: You're exactly, and holding that hand out, I said this in a podcast before. Um, It wasn't about sexual trauma, but this wonderful guy I met in Philadelphia, Anthony, I think his last name's Fidelity. He works with The Mission Continues, and he said something to make me cry when I was listening, and he's like, it took me a while to extend my hand, basically into the darkness, because you're not really sure who's going to grab it and pull you down, or who who you're going to reach out to where you can help them pull up. So I again, I applaud everything you've done, Heath, and um, in, in all your talks, and and just bearing your soul and you know reaching your hand out into the darkness to see who grabs it. And I'm just so glad that you're so strong that you can pull up whoever grabs grabs your hand. Um, you know, in your plate of healing. Um, and combating these stigmas that are attached to sexual assault. Um, I just, I want to know, is there anything else that you wanted, any kind of message you wanted to put out there or anything you think we might have missed or um, gleaned over that you wanted to say before we go?
1: The main thing I tell everybody is they're not alone. Yeah. For years I thought I was alone. always find somebody that's healthy to be able to rely on and don't hold it in, oh my gosh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Find somebody to trust and just let it out. That that first time opening up that can of worms is probably the best time of your life because you're not holding it in no more.
0: You're right. You're you're so, and even the gory details, uh, as you've shown and sharing before. Listen, thank you again so much.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Snow on the ocean,
0: no one knows.
1: Listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.